Hello, and welcome to the Prepared School Psych Podcast, a space dedicated to equipping and empowering all who champion the success of students with diverse needs. I'm your host, Jenny Ponzerich, leveraging my 20 plus years as a school psychologist, presenter, and consultant, I work alongside school psychs to provide practical strategies that can be easily implemented, which in turn will support student success. Here, we'll delve into the practical and theoretical, welcoming voices from all corners of the field, seasoned school psychologists, experienced educators, dedicated family members, and visionary leaders. Together, we'll explore evidence-based approaches, tackle real-world challenges, and uncover fresh perspectives to help each child reach their full potential. Whether you're a school psych seeking new tools, a teacher searching for effective strategies, or a special education director eager to support your groups, this podcast is your resource for insightful conversations, actionable advice, and a supportive community. So tune in, get prepared, and join us as we ignite a revolution in student support, equipping educators with the tools and knowledge to build brighter futures for every child. Hello, everyone. Today, I am delighted to introduce our next guest, Dr. Amy Miranda. She is a dedicated school psychologist and licensed educational psychologist based in Northern California. With six years of invaluable experience, Amy is currently providing her expertise to support an elementary school and is a contributor to our prepared school site community. Her commitment to her profession extends beyond her daily responsibilities as she takes joy in supporting fellow school psychologists. Amy's true passion lies in advocating for neurodiversity affirming practices within the field. She firmly believes in the beauty of every brain and expresses deep gratitude for the opportunity to work collaboratively with students and families alike. Join me in welcoming Dr. Miranda, a compassionate advocate for neurodiversity and a valuable asset to the education community. So happy to have you here with us, Amy. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. All right. We are kicking off with, it's such an important question, something that everyone asks everyone else. What is your favorite TV show that you are watching right now? The most important question of the day. (laughs) Okay, well, I am getting ready for the next season of Abbott Elementary, and so I'm re-watching some of the old ones. It's, have you watched it, Jenny? I'm a big fan. Yes, I cannot okay, wait perfect. for the next season. <laughs> it's, I think it comes out in February, early February, so mark your calendars. I am so excited. It's just so fun to watch something that's relatable and also hilarious, so <laughs> nice break from the day. <laughs> Well, and I remember when I watched it, I was curious about you. When I originally watched it, I watched it as it was actually on TV. Yeah. So I had to wait like the week in between. We're so used to all the streaming services. Like, I think one of the benefits of going back and rewatching it is you could just watch them all right in a row and kind of get that continuum of of the of the show. Totally. No, we're so lucky to have all the streaming services that it's like, okay, what's going to happen? And then you watch like the little relationships form and you're like, I just want to know, like, just 
are you guys together? What's happening? What happened with your student? You just want to know so much. So, and there's been quite a break. So I'm excited for it to keep coming, coming on it's very soon. It's going to be good. <laughs> All right. Well, in one sentence, how would your colleagues describe you as a school psychologist? You know, Jenny, I was thinking about this question and it's not easy. <laughs> I think they would describe me as somebody who is passionate and efficient at the same time. So I definitely come into situations with a lot of energy about things, but I also am definitely of the mindset to get it done and get it done well. And that has its strengths and weaknesses, but it, it definitely is something I'm known for at school. So I would say someone who's passionate and efficient at the same time. And I'm curious, when you thought about that question, the term colleagues, mm -hmm. who were the colleagues in your mind as you were thinking about that? Because that can question. mean so many things, right? Like there, we have all of our school psychology colleagues, but they don't actually get to see us work. Correct. Right? Oh they yeah, only I did not make... think about that. <laughs> yeah, we only get to kind of hear about them in like professional development and in meetings and stuff like that. So were you thinking about your school as a whole? Were you thinking more about your assessment team members? I'm just kind of curious. I was thinking about everyone who's ever been in a meeting with me, because I think that's really like the place that people can see your style shine. You know, we're so independent in our role that when we do our organization, our assessments, our counseling, we're pretty much by ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just thinking about all the meetings, <laughs> all the people. So teachers, families, you know, administrators. And I tried to think across I've been at several schools in my six years. So thinking across schools, what's something they might say. And those were the words I thought, okay, I think those are fair across settings. <laughs> Passionate and efficient. I like those. Yeah. I like those a lot. Well, we kind of talked about it a little bit in your intro, but do you want to remind everyone, how long have you been a school psychologist? And at what point in your journey did you really become interested in or focus on this topic of neurodiversity? Yeah, so I have been a school psychologist for six years. This is my sixth year. And I've always been at elementary sites. Um, and this year I'm actually working a little bit of a reduced contract because I just had a baby. So, but in the middle of the sixth year, um, I started becoming pretty passionate about neurodiversity affirming practices. I want to say about two years ago is when I really was started to dive into the movement itself, which we can talk more about. But as I learned more about it, it resonated so deeply with me because the concepts are things I inherently am passionate about naturally. So it was more of learning the terminology that's used to discuss these things that I've been so passionate about the entire time. Um, so technically, the in terms of the movement itself, the terms that are used, you know, how to really apply this knowledge to my practice, I would say a couple of years. Really during COVID is when I started like listening to more books and reading more articles about it because we kind of, you know, could have that time to dive in. Um, but I've kind of just taken it from there and tried to apply it to my practice. Well, I'm just going to say that's a little surprising because I've known you for a couple of years mm -hmm. and the passion you have about this topic and the level of knowledge you have about this topic. I would have thought that your your deep dive into this started a lot longer than just a couple of years ago, because this is something that you love to talk about yeah. so much right now. I think that is a testament to just how deeply it resonated with me. And as, as we'll talk more, the concepts, you know, as of a couple of years ago, I could put 
labels to these things, but they were always things and thoughts and philosophies that I found myself practicing already or advocating for even before I was a school psychologist. So the the dive into it was more of, oh, this is what that's called. Oh, this is where that has come from. That makes perfect. So it's more of that like finalizing the understanding of the history of it and the terminology more of more than just opening my mind to the idea because I found that my mind was already there. Um, so it's it's exciting to hear you say that because that's how I feel too, that this is something I've always felt really strongly about, but now can use the correct terminology and understand where it has come from and where it's going in a more theoretical stance as well. Well, I use the term already neurodiversity, but I know one of the terms you use a lot is neurodiverse affirming practices. Did I say that correctly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So talk to me about this term. Awesome. So neurodiversity in and of itself is the idea and the thinking that every brain is different. So there is a normal or typical brain. And I use the air quotes for those of you listening, because what is normal, we could get into that as a whole other conversation. But in terms of comparing brains to each other, there are some that are more typical in their profiles and some that are less typical. So they might stray from that typical brain that could be emotionally, it could be in how they process information, it could be sensory, a whole variety of things. When I say neurodiversity affirming practices, that is really understanding neurodiversity, first of all. So what is it? What does that mean in our field? But as a school psychologist, what am I doing to make sure that neurodivergent individuals are feeling celebrated, are feeling embraced, are feeling valued? So that's the affirming part. How am I, in my practice, making sure that those differences, those brain differences are not just pointed out in the IEP. They're not just, oh, yep, that child has dyslexia, check that off the box, we're done. But more than that, how am I affirming that person and who they are to make sure they know that they are a valuable part of their school community, of the overall community, and it's been a wonderful opportunity to work with them. So that's kind of the affirming piece. And then, of course, applying it to practice. Okay. So I'm curious, because I've, I've heard you speak about this. I know you've mm-hmm. uh, spoken on this topic in a variety of different settings, um, some of them within our prepared school site community. I, I think you got to talk about this in one of our summer boot camps as well. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, because you mentioned that you've really, probably other than your internship and practicum experience, really been focused at the elementary level. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when I think about psychologists who work at more of the middle school and high school level, a lot of times the students themselves are part of the IEP meetings, right? So they get to yes. hear a lot of this information. And typically at the elementary level, they're not included in meetings, right? I'm not saying yeah. never, but yeah, typically we're not having first graders sitting in at their own IEP meetings. So yeah. I'm curious Because part of what I heard you say was about really making sure like the student themselves is feeling Mm -hmm. affirmed. So how are you able to do this? I mean, elementary, you've got such a wide developmental level there. What would be a couple of examples of how this is done for, like I said, a first Mm -hmm. grader versus Mm -hmm. like a fourth or fifth grader? Great question. And I have two things that come to mind immediately. So first it's the actual assessment process itself. You have so many opportunities to affirm that person and that child for who they are. And that can be any age. 
we can do a pre-K student who's non-speaking all the way to a 12th grader or older, you know, to whatever challenges they're experiencing. And we can do that in a lot of ways. So we can tie in student interests in every opportunity that we can. That's something I try really hard to do with the younger students, because if you take time throughout the assessment process, really starting in square one, the MTSS process or pre-referral, whatever schools call it, you know, that, that pre-assessment process, you can learn a lot of that information from the get-go. What do they love? What does the child love to talk about? What do they love to play with? Do they have a favorite color? Do they, you know, whatever it could be, their preferred interests. And if you can tie those into the assessment process in any way you can, now, I know we have standardization practices and all that, so you don't, you don't have to break those, but you can bring those things into the assessment that is a tiny gesture that's gonna go a long way because it shows that I have taken the time to understand what you like to do, what you enjoy, and I want to enjoy that with you. I am affirming the fact that it's okay to love that. If all you wanna talk about are trains, I love talking about trains, let's talk about trains. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a negative thing. And I use the word negative loosely because in neurodiversity, we understand that nothing is inherently negative or positive. Things are what they are. So if you have an interest in trains, then you have an interest in trains, and that's what it is. Um, so that's one way. And then another way that I try to make sure all students of all ages feel affirmed is outside of that direct assessment, my interactions with them. And I'd like to make one more comment about that before I move on. One time I was in a training with Dr. Pfeiffer of the FAR and the FAM and all that. And he, he said one time, I'll never, ever forget it. He said, when you are assessing a student, it is your job to make them feel like a rock star the entire time. They should always know that when they're with you, they are just the highlight of the school. And I loved that because that aligns with this inherently. Like that is the entire point. When you're with me, you are the best student here. You've got all these great strengths. I love playing with trains with you. I love that you love blue. I love blue. Look, my office has blue. You know, whatever it is that you need to do. And that can apply to all ages. Of course, the interests probably are different and the way you would do that <laughs> might look different from first grade to, you know, fourth grade or to eighth grade beyond. Um, and then the other way that I think about making sure students feel affirmed is I've started this is kind of new for me, but I've gotten great feedback on it so far. And it's writing the student a letter at the end of the assessment process. So what I've, and I did not come up with this idea. So anybody listening, if you came up with this idea, you are a genius. <laughs> but I've started to take it on. And what I do is I go through all the assessment results after I finish the report. I kind of look into my summary probably more because that's where I've consolidated the information for myself. And I write the student a letter at their particular level. So if it's kindergarten, I try to write it kindergarten friendly and so on and so forth. But all I do in that letter is explain all of the wonderful things that I learned about their brain. So if they have a relative strength in visual spatial processing, then I would explain what that means. You know, it was so awesome to work with you. I learned that you are really good at putting pictures together. I can't wait to see what you do in second grade with that. You know, I try to take that time to just praise them for being themselves. Now, in kindergarten, they're not reading that letter, <laughs> uh, but their parents are. And when they get older, they can read that letter. Um, I actually, when I was thinking about this practice, I saw an example of somebody doing this, and they actually wrote a letter for a non-speaking student 
but they used pictorial images to explain all of the students' strengths. So they tried to even use that child's personal strengths in understanding the letter. So all of these efforts are really just to make sure that that child knows how incredibly important they are in the space that they're in, despite the challenges. Now, not to say we don't talk about those, because that's obviously a huge part of our role as a school psychologist, but it is possible to talk about all the good things too. And that's something that I'm really trying to embrace more myself and share with others. I'm curious, because obviously, like you mentioned, especially for kindergarten, are the parents going to be involved yeah. in these types of things? What kind of feedback have you gotten from parents when you've shared this letter? Is this something you share like at the IEP meeting? Is this an after follow-up type of thing? So I attach it to the back of the report that the parent gets. So it's not something I, you know, talk about necessarily at the IEP meeting because I want it to be something just for that student and family. It's not like it's a secret or hidden, but more, more private and intimate kind of part of piece of information. I have gotten wonderful feedback from parents. In fact, parents have written me emails after, called me after just to thank me for taking that time. Um, and I think that you know, for those younger students, the parents are, like I mentioned, the ones reading that first, you know, they might share it with the student, but that matters too, that the families are feeling affirmed in who their child is. You know, families get tired of hearing all of the issues and the problems and the, you know, categorizing a child in this way or that. And again, that's a huge part of our job to do that, but we can, we can have the lens of making sure we are highlighting who that person is more than what they're not. Well, as you mentioned, you've kind of, you know, heard more about the exact terminology just a couple yeah. of years ago, but that this really aligned with kind of just your thinking process about this field and, and working with uh, the students and the families that we work with. Why do you think this topic is so important to you? That is an easy question to answer. So I was really propelled into the field of school psychology because of my older sister. So she has had her own ups and downs throughout education and life. And I've been able to watch a lot of her, her journey. And it was a challenging journey to watch simply because I felt always that school was a frustrating place for her. And it was not a place that she necessarily felt embraced for who she was. And that has really followed her into the rest of her life as an adult. And as, and you know, I've watched my parents experience that too and embrace that too. My mom was a speech language pathologist for 30 years. And so she understands all of the, you know, she leads IEPs, she's got whole things. But watching her participate in the process from the other side, from the parent side, was also very challenging for her because of the way my sister was experiencing life and education. So that was a huge, impactful thing for me. I mean, it really transformed my purpose in life and in what I wanted to do. It is my whole goal as a school psychologist to not let families have that experience. We can talk about frustrating things. We can talk about heavy things. But I want them to know that they matter at the table and that their child is important for who they are. There's nothing inherently wrong with any child. There's nothing to be fixed. And that it's our job as a school to support them no matter what. So having that kind of angle and sharing those things, even just saying that at a meeting makes a really big difference for families. 
And so as I've started to learn, like I was mentioning more about the terminology of the neurodiversity movement, it hits so close to home because I've always been a big advocate for making sure we're not uh, supporting the inequities around disability. A lot of people and systems, the education system is not uh, unique in the fact that people with disabilities don't always get the same outcomes. They don't always get, you know, and as school psychologists, we're advocates for that to help that process along. Um, but really also just people in the community. I watch them the way they talk to my sister and the way they interact with her and just those basic things that I've always been a strong advocate for. So those words, the word, even the word neurodiversity, as soon as I looked at the definition, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, yes, all brains are different. Doesn't mean there's a problem with that brain. That's just the way it is. And trying my best to teach students about this too, so they don't carry the weight of I am different and I am wrong. It's I am different and I have something to offer because of that. So it, it's a really lofty goal, but you know, those are kind of the things that really drive me to keep learning about this and keep talking about it. Well, for school psychologists out there who maybe want to learn more about this topic, what are some actionable steps that they can take? Fabulous question, because a huge part of the neurodiversity movement is listening to neurodivergent individuals. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend reading books written by autistic individuals, ADHD individuals, neurodivergent individuals across the, the whole neurodivergent umbrella. And I do want to put that plug in that a lot of times when we say the word neurodiversity, people think autism. Yeah. And that's not uh, incorrect, but there are also other neurodivergences that would fall under that term too. And there's there's many, but we can kind of start to reframe neurodiversity as really just any brain differences. So, you know, schizophrenia falls under there, dyslexia falls under there, and how many students with dyslexia do we work with? You know, so right. many. So anyway, I digress, but really learning from folks that are neurodivergent. Um, there's one author in particular that I do want to recommend his books just because I love them so much, but Jonathan Mooney is a fantastic author. He is an ADHD and dyslexic, so he is somebody we can listen to and learn from firsthand, which is again, part of the movement. But also he writes in one of his books, a um, book that I'm referring to is called Normal Sucks, but he writes about his experience with his school psychologist. And um, it's not the most pleasant experience that he's referring to. And when I was reading it, I almost wanted to like skip, <laughs> like, I don't <laughs> wanna read this part, but I'm glad I, I read it because it was yet more, kind of evidence as to why talking about these things is so important and matters so much. No, I, I firmly believe that no school psychologist on this entire planet goes into any situation with the intention to upset a child. But sometimes we accidentally can or do. And so how can we, you know, do everything in our power to avoid that? And so I, I highly recommend him, but anything like that, you know, there's a website also called Neuroclastic and that website is completely compiled of different resources and poems and articles written by neurodivergent individuals. It's like an entire community of, of uh, folks that contribute there. So anything like that. Um, you can, of course, also watch videos on this, read books about neurodiversity, but I would say the biggest push is listening to neurodivergent individuals themselves. 
and for everyone who was trying to figure out how to write that down quickly enough, we are going to make sure that the book that Amy mentioned, as well as the website are in the show notes so that everyone can just put down your pen and just listen here and be able to click on that. Um, you know, one of the things as you were speaking that reminded me about when I was learning more about this movement, I will say one of the things that I did was notice that there's some Facebook groups out there. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think most of us are used to different rules in Facebook groups, you know, or getting yeah. into them. There are some different kind of yes. questions that they pose depending on where you're walking into. And, you know, there's some, some groups that are very anti-ABA and, yes. and I, I was just surprised by the question you have to answer to just get into the group. But one of the things that I remember for so many years it had been ingrained to use people first language, right? That we never said the autistic person, right? We were trying so hard to say the person with autism. Yeah. And I think that there's been this shift mm -hmm. and a lot of it comes from exactly what you were talking about, listening to people who are neurodivergent exactly. and not everyone believes in people first language. Like the neurodiverse individual doesn't want, like they're okay to be called the autistic person. Yep. And one of the things that made me really more thoughtful in talking with parents and talking with students themselves is asking what they want, like what kind of terminology we want to use for this individual person and not just assume people first language or the opposite or whatever. Absolutely. And to be honest, as a school psychologist and someone who was trained in person first language, it's really uncomfortable. To it's not uncomfortable when you were saying it. Yes. Earlier, I was like, okay, okay, you know, but. Like you said, it's, and really, I'd like to kind of highlight the thinking about the change. So they call it disability first language. Sometimes that's a way that it's phrased. But the thinking is that if I have to remind you that I am a person with autism, then I have to make sure you understand that I am a person. So it's separating the fact that the disability is separate from who I am as an autistic person. Now, when you combine those, so you might say an autistic or an autistic person, which even that I'm like, oh, I'm saying <laughs> it's uncomfortable. But the way, the reason for that change for some folks is because being autistic or being dyslexic or whatever it is truly makes them who they are. It's not a separation of their person. So it's that thinking that it's a part of me and what makes me who I am. Um, but I love your, your kind of insight there, Jenny, that we definitely should be asking folks what they prefer. Of course, our younger students won't have a preference or understand likely, but we could ask their families if they're comfortable with that. We could talk about the differences. A lot of times in the school setting, we're some of the first people to even inform families of these disabilities or the way that their brains are working. So we can use that as an opportunity to inform them about the neurodiversity movement. And here's sometimes the language that is used and maybe you can think about what makes sense to your family or you know, just taking it as an opportunity to learn um, and teach others. But you make a great point. And I think that's another chance we have to listen to neurodivergent individuals. Well, I'm just kind of, as you were talking through that, I started thinking about all the wonderful resources that a lot of, you know, again, because we're usually the first that are talking about some of these different disabilities with families. And we are a wonderful, you know, have a wonderful arsenal of uh, resources for them. I'm curious, do you ever put in some of resources for this, like in your reports for families? I do. Yeah. You know, one of the, in my recommendation section, usually the first thing I have a little blurb that I have written. Um, and it's just a product of my own brain. So it's not perfect in any way, shape or form, but it just explains what neurodiversity is 
and that we as an IEP team and as a team supporting this child should always focus on their strengths as well as the areas that they need support in. Um, and I take that opportunity to teach them about what neurodiversity is just in general. Now, I do put in resources about the neurodiversity movement as a whole. So I like the neuroplastic website is a great one, but I try to cater to the specific needs of that child. So for example, the neuroplastic website is mostly uh, m focuses on non-speaking individuals. And so I might include that if there's a child that's not speaking, right? So I try to cater to that specifically. Do put in a lot of book references for all kinds of students. The Jonathan Mooney books I use for a lot of our dyslexic students because it's very, he's a very inspirational speaker and writer too. So it can give some, you know, optimistic views of some of these things as well. But that's a great question. I put as many as I can <laughs> because a lot of times, like we said, this is the first time folks have even heard this term. And I've also noticed the flip side of that. Families either know nothing about the neurodiversity movement or they're extremely well-versed and they're very appreciative of that acknowledgement. So it's either like they're passionate about this and they've looked us up to support their child or the opposite of, oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for teaching me kind of an opportunity. Wonderful. Well, we're going to do a little reflection question here. Um, when you reflect back to when you were a first year school psychologist, what advice would you give to someone who's new or newer in this field? I would tell them to trust themselves. So I think a lot of times we, well, most times, I, I would venture to say most times, we are the person in the room that people are looking towards for answers or for support. And it can be intimidating because again, most times we're the only school psychologist there. You know, we can't turn to our friend and be like, what would you say? <laughs> You're alone there. Um, but trust yourself and share the information you have and what you've been trained on. And if you don't know, that's completely acceptable to say that, to say, you know, that's a great question. Let me get an answer for you and then go back to your resources and look up what you can. You know, you are, as, a, as the school psychologist, someone who is respected and appreciated at your sites where you very much should be. And so to be able to say that, you know, I don't really have an answer. It's very respectful and professional too, and can sometimes be a learning experience for you. So that's something I try to do more of now instead of I, and trust me, I am one, I could talk myself out of a, out of a wall. I could just, I could figure it out, but sometimes we don't need to, right? We can just say, I'll look into that for you and get some information. Nobody's going to think less of you or think you don't know what you're doing. In fact, there'll be a lot of respect for that. So that's the advice I would give. Trust yourself and do what you know is right because you know what to do at the end of the day. Well, our podcast is called The Prepared School Psychologist. When you think of that term prepared, what do you do to help yourself feel more prepared in your role? I, every time I leave my office, I do two things. I make sure it's somewhat tidy because when I come back in the next day, that makes me feel better just personally. And then I also make a hour by hour list of the next day, what I'm going to do at what time. Now, of course, there's flexibility in that, but I want to make sure I've allocated my time well for the next day. I've already done that pre-planning. 
And so when I get there in the morning, you know, mornings are difficult. We hurry up, we get to work, we make it there. You don't have to at that time look at your whole day, figure out what you're going to do because you've already done it. So it's a gesture you can do for yourself the day before that will help you be prepared and use your time very wisely. In my first year as a fieldwork student, my supervisor told me that every moment with kids should not be wasted. But as soon as kids leave, do whatever you want to do with your time. Because, and she makes a great point, right? Because we only have access to kids for a certain number of minutes in the day. And that is stressful as a school psychologist. We have a lot to do, a lot of schedules to balance. What time does this class go? When does this grade go to lunch? We have a lot of uh, balancing to do. So that's one way I try to make sure I'm prepared for the next day and feeling like I'm accomplishing what I need to accomplish. I love that. I heard someone talk about I like their their goal for 2024 was to always plan tomorrow today. Yes, yeah. It's all, sometimes in the morning I'm like, thanks yesterday, Amy. <laughs> you helped me and that even if you're like just try to get out the door it's worth that few minutes of thinking about tomorrow it's because it saves you hours the next day just to kind of tough it out for a few minutes for today well as we're finishing up here um i just want to thank amy dr Miranda, for being here and sharing your knowledge but i also wanted to let people know that inside our prepared school site community if you also want to know a little bit more about this topic you've actually created some different mini courses about yes. this i think we already have one in there and then you're in the process of creating the second one correct yep. do you want to talk a little bit about like what is in those courses of course so our first mini course is an introduction to the neurodiversity movement. So it talks about the history of the movement. I explain all the terminology that I've used today and some other, other terms that we use in the course itself. So the, that first course is really a foundation. Do I know what the words mean? Do I know where this has come from and some of the history of it? We also talk a little bit about the neurodiversity symbol and the history of that too. So it's a fun, just kind of wrapping your mind around what the words mean and, and where this has come from. The second course, I actually just finished creating it. It's going to be released soon. Um, and it is about how we can apply neurodiversity affirming practices to the assessment process itself. So I actually walk through every step of the assessment, starting with that pre-referral all the way to writing the report. Every step, how can I be a neurodiversity affirming school psychologist in my observation? How can I be neurodiversity affirming when I am writing my report, when I am doing my direct assessment? So every step of the way. And then we're also going to create a third course coming out later in the year that's strictly going to be focused on sharing results at the IEP meeting in a neurodiversity affirming way. Um, we talk about a lot of heavy topics as a school psychologist. So how can we do so through the neurodiversity affirming lens? What language can we use? We'll talk about some of those ideas like writing the letter to, to students, maybe even you want to apply that to your IEP team, things like that. So we've kind of got the arc of understanding the neurodiversity movement and how to use that understanding as a school psychologist, but a lot of great resources in there and I hope everybody enjoys it. So wonderful. So everyone who's already a member, or anyone who's interested in being a member, all of these different, we call them mini courses, they're about two hours or less. Um, variety of different videos and resources available for people. And if you need to purchase CEUs, those are available. If you need a certificate of completion, those are available for any of our mini courses. So I am so excited that you're 
part of our community and providing all of this wonderful information um, for all of our prepared school site community members. So me thank too. you so much for all of your work and thank you so much for your time together with me today on this topic. Of course. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's always lovely talking with you. And today was so much fun. All right. That concludes another episode of the Prepared School Psych Podcast. And I hope today's discussion left you feeling not just informed, but empowered to take action. Remember, every conversation we have, every resource we share, and every student we champion builds a bridge toward a more inclusive and effective learning landscape. So tune in, share your voice, and join us as we build a collective force for impactful change. Head over to my website at jennyponzurich.com to join our vibrant community of school psychologists in the prepared school site community. Together, let's keep learning, keep growing, and most importantly, keep making a difference. One student, one solution, one empowered educator at a time.